Section 15 of A Theologico-Political Treatise by Baruch Benedict Spinoza, translated by Robert Harvey Munro Elvis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. Chapter 14. Definitions of Faith, the Faith, and the Foundations of Faith, which is once for all separated from philosophy. For a true knowledge of faith, it is above all things necessary to understand that the Bible was adapted to the intelligence not only of the prophets, but also of the diverse and fickle Jewish multitude. This will be recognized by all who give any thought to the subject, for they will see that a person who accepted promiscuously everything in Scripture as being the universal and absolute teaching of God, without accurately defining what was adapted to the proper intelligence, would find it impossible to escape confounding the opinions of the masses with the divine doctrines, praising the judgments and comments of man as the teaching of God, and making a wrong use of scriptural authority. Who, I say, does not perceive that this is the chief reason why so many sectaries teach contradictory opinions as divine documents, and support their contentions with numerous scriptural texts, till it has passed in Belgium into a proverb, Gien Ketter Sonder Letter, no heretic without a text. The sacred books were not written by one man, nor for the people of a single period, but by many authors of different temperaments, at times extending from first to last over nearly two thousand years, and perhaps much longer. We will not, however, accuse the sectaries of impiety, because they have adapted the words of Scripture to their own opinions. It is thus that these words were adapted to the understanding of the masses originally, and every one is at liberty so to treat them, if he sees that he can thus obey God in matters relating to justice and charity with a more full consent. But we do accuse those who will not grant this freedom to their fellows, but who persecute all who differ from them, as God's enemies, however honourable and virtuous be their lives, while on the other hand they cherish those who agree with them, however foolish they may be, as God's elect. Such conduct is as wicked and dangerous to the state as any that can be conceived. In order, therefore, to establish the limits to which individual freedom should extend, and to decide what persons, in spite of the diversity of their opinions, are to be looked upon as the faithful, we must define faith and its essentials. This task I hope to accomplish in the present chapter, and also to separate faith from philosophy, which is the chief aim of the whole treatise. In order to proceed duly to the demonstration, let us recapitulate the chief aim and object of Scripture. This will indicate a standard by which we may define faith. We have said in a former chapter that the aim and object of Scripture is only to teach obedience. Thus much, I think, no one can question. Who does not see that both Testaments are nothing else but schools for this object, and have neither of them any aim beyond inspiring mankind with a voluntary obedience? For, not to repeat what I have said in the last chapter, I will remark that Moses did not seek to convince the Jews by reason, but bound them by a covenant, by oaths, and by conferring benefits. Further, he threatened the people with punishment if they should infringe the law, and promised rewards if they should obey it. All these are not means for teaching knowledge, but for inspiring obedience. The doctrine of the Gospels enjoins nothing but simple faith, namely to believe in God and to honour Him, which is the same thing as to obey Him. There is no occasion for me to throw further light on a question so plain by citing scriptural texts commending obedience, such as may be found in great numbers in both Testaments. Moreover, the Bible teaches very clearly in a great many passages what every one ought to do in order to obey God. The whole duty is summed up in love to one's neighbour. 
it cannot therefore be denied that he who by god's command loves his neighbour as himself is truly obedient and blessed according to the law whereas he who hates his neighbour or neglects him is rebellious and obstinate lastly it is plain to every one that the bible was not written and disseminated only for the learned but for men of every age and race wherefore we may rest assured that we are not bound by scriptural command to believe anything beyond what is absolutely necessary for fulfilling its main precept this precept then is the only standard of the whole catholic faith and by it alone all the dogmas needful to be believed should be determined so much being abundantly manifest as is also the fact that all other doctrines of the faith can be legitimately deduced therefrom by reason alone i leave it to every man to decide for himself how it comes to pass that so many divisions have arisen in the church can it be from any other cause than those suggested at the beginning of chapter seven it is these same causes which compel me to explain the method of determining the dogmas of the faith from the foundation we have discovered for if i neglected to do so and put the question on a regular basis i might justly be said to have promised too lavishly for that any one might by my showing introduce any doctrine he liked into religion under the pretext that it was a necessary means to obedience especially would this be the case in question respecting the divine attributes in order therefore to set forth the whole matter methodically i will begin with a definition of faith which on the principle above given should be as follows faith consists in a knowledge of god without which obedience to him would be impossible and which the mere fact of obedience to him implies this definition is so clear and follows so plainly from what we have already proved that it needs no explanation the consequences involved therein i will now briefly show one faith is not salutary in itself but only in respect to the obedience it implies or as james puts it in his epistle chapter two verse seventeen faith without works is dead see the whole of the chapter quoted two he who is truly obedient necessarily possesses true and saving faith for if obedience be granted faith must be granted also as the same apostle expressly says in these words chapter two verse eighteen show me thy faith without thy works and i will show thee my faith by my works so also john first epistle chapter four verse seven every one that loveth is born of god and knoweth god he that loveth not knoweth not god for god is love from these texts i repeat it follows that we can only judge a man faithful or unfaithful by his works if his works be good he is faithful however much his doctrines may differ from those of the rest of the faithful if his works be evil though he may verbally conform he is unfaithful for obedience implies faith and faith without works is dead john in the thirteenth verse of the chapter above quoted expressly teaches the same doctrine hereby he says know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit that is love he had said before that god is love and therefore he concludes on his own received principles that whoso possesses love possesses truly the spirit of god as no one has beheld god he infers that no one has knowledge or consciousness of god except from love towards his neighbour and also that no one can have knowledge of any of god's attributes except this of love in so far as we participate therein if these arguments are not conclusive they at any rate show the apostle's meaning but the words in chapter two verses three and four of the same epistle are much clearer 
for they state in so many words our precise contentions. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. From all this, I repeat, it follows, that they are the true enemies of Christ, who persecute honourable and justice-loving men, because they differ from them, and do not uphold the same religious dogmas as themselves. For whosoever loves justice and charity we know, by that very fact, to be faithful. Whosoever persecutes the faithful is an enemy to Christ. Lastly, it follows that faith does not demand that dogmas should be true, as that they should be pious, that is, such as will stir up the heart to obey. Though there be many such which contain not a shadow of truth, so long as they be held in good faith, otherwise their adherents are disobedient. For how can any one desirous of loving justice and obeying God adore as divine what he knows to be alien from the divine nature? However, men may err from simplicity of mind, and Scripture, as we have seen, does not condemn ignorance but obstinacy. This is the necessary result of our definition of faith, and all its branches should spring from the universal rule above given, and from the evident aim and object of the Bible, unless we choose to mix our own inventions therewith. Thus it is not true doctrines which are expressly required by the Bible, so much as doctrines necessary for obedience, and to confirm in our hearts the love of our neighbour, wherein, to adopt the words of John, we are in God, and God in us. As then, each man's faith must be judged pious or impious, only in respect of its producing obedience or obstinacy, and not in respect of its truth, and as no one will dispute that men's dispositions are exceedingly varied, that all do not acquiesce in the same things, but are ruled some by one opinion, some by another, so that what moves one to devotion moves another to laughter and contempt. It follows that there can be no doctrine in the Catholic or universal religion which can give rise to controversy among good men. Such doctrines might be pious to some and impious to others, whereas they should be judged solely by their fruits. To the universal religion, then, belongs only such dogmas as are absolutely required in order to attain obedience to God, and without which such obedience would be impossible. As for the rest, each man, seeing that he is the best judge of his own character, should adopt whatever he thinks best adapted to strengthen his love of justice. If this were so, I think there would be no further occasion for controversies in the church. I have now no further fear in enumerating the dogmas of universal faith or the fundamental dogmas of the whole of Scripture, inasmuch as they all tend, as may be seen from what has been said, to this one doctrine, namely, that there exists a God, that is, a supreme being, who loves justice and charity, and who must be obeyed by whosoever would be saved. That the worship of this being consists in the practice of justice and love towards one's neighbour, and that they contain nothing beyond the following doctrines. 1. That God or a supreme being exists sovereignly, just and merciful, the exemplar of the true life, that whosoever is ignorant of or disbelieves in his existence cannot obey him or know him as a judge. 2. That he is one. Nobody will dispute that this doctrine is absolutely necessary for entire devotion, admiration and love towards God. For devotion, admiration and love spring from the superiority of one over all else. 3. That he is omnipresent, or that all things are open to him, for if anything could be supposed to be concealed from him, or to be unnoticed by him, we might doubt or be ignorant of the equity of his judgment as directing all things. 
4. That he has supreme right and dominion over all things, and that he does nothing under compulsion, but by his absolute fiat and grace. All things are bound to obey him, he is not bound to obey any. 5. That the worship of God consists only in justice and charity, or love towards one's neighbor. 6. That all those, and those only, who obey God by their manner of life are saved. The rest of mankind who live under the sway of their pleasures are lost. If we did not believe this, there would be no reason for obeying God rather than pleasure. 7. Lastly, that God forgives the sins of those who repent. No one is free from sin, so that, without this belief, all would despair of salvation, and there would be no reason for believing in the mercy of God. He who firmly believes that God, out of the mercy and grace with which he directs all things, forgives the sins of men, and who feels his love of God kindled thereby, he, I say, does really know Christ according to the Spirit, and Christ is in him. No one can deny that all these doctrines are before all things necessary to be believed, in order that every man, without exception, may be able to obey God according to the bidding of the law above explained. For if one of these precepts be disregarded, obedience is destroyed. But as to what God or the exemplar of the true life may be, whether fire or spirit or light or thought or what not, this, I say, has nothing to do with faith any more than has the question how he comes to be the exemplar of the true life, whether it be because he has a just and merciful mind or because all things exist and act through him, and consequently that we understand through him and through him see what is truly just and good. Everyone may think on such questions as he likes. Furthermore, faith is not affected whether we hold that God is omnipresent essentially or potentially, that he directs all things by absolute fiat or by the necessity of his nature, that he dictates laws like a prince or that he sets them forth as eternal truths, that man obeys him by virtue of free will or by virtue of the necessity of the divine decree. Lastly, that the reward of the good and the punishment of the wicked is natural or supernatural. These and such like questions have no bearing on faith, except in so far as they are used as means to give us license to sin more or to obey God less. I will go further and maintain that every man is bound to adapt these dogmas to his own way of thinking, and to interpret them according as he feels that he can give them his fullest and most unhesitating assent, so that he may the more easily obey God with his whole heart. Such was the manner, as we have already pointed out, in which the faith was in old time revealed and written, in accordance with the understanding and opinions of the prophets and people of the period. So, in like fashion, every man is bound to adapt it to his own opinion, so that he may accept it without any hesitation or mental repugnance. We have shown that faith does not so much require truth as piety, and that it is only quickening and pious through obedience. Consequently, no one is faithful save by obedience alone. The best faith is not necessarily possessed by him who displays the best reasons, but by him who displays the best fruits of justice and charity. How salutary and necessary this doctrine is for a state, in order that men may dwell together in peace and concord, and how many and how great causes of disturbance and crime are thereby cut off, I leave every one to judge for himself. Before we go further, I may remark that we can, by means of what we have just proved, easily answer the objections raised in chapter 1, when we were discussing God's speaking with the Israelites on Mount Sinai. 
for though the voice heard by the israelites could not give these men any philosophical or mathematical certitude of god's existence it was yet sufficient to thrill them with admiration for god as they already knew him and to stir them up to obedience and such was the object of the display god did not wish to teach the israelites the absolute attributes of his essence none of which he then revealed but to break down their hardness of heart and to draw them to obedience therefore he did not appeal to them with reason but with the sound of trumpets thunder and lightnings it remains for me to show that between faith or theology and philosophy there is no connection nor affinity i think no one will dispute the fact who has knowledge of the aim and foundations of the two subjects for they are as wide apart as the poles philosophy has no end in view save truth faith as we have abundantly proved looks for nothing but obedience and piety again philosophy is based on axioms which must be sought from nature alone faith is based on history and language and must be sought for only in scripture and revelation as we showed in chapter seven faith therefore allows the greatest latitude in philosophic speculation allowing us without blame to think what we like about anything and only condemning as heretics and schismatics those who teach opinions which tend to produce obstinacy hatred strife and anger while on the other hand only considering as faithful those who persuade us as far as their reason and faculties will permit to follow justice and charity lastly as what we are now setting forth are the most important subjects of my treatise i would most urgently beg the reader before i proceed to read these two chapters with especial attention and to take the trouble to weigh them well in his mind let him take for granted that i have not written with a view to introducing novelties but in order to do away with abuses such as i hope i may at some future time at last see reformed end of section fifteen read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama